You're listening to the Straight to Video Podcast with Rob Lane. Hey, how's it going? Hope you've had a great week and welcome along to a new episode of my podcast, Straight to Video. As always, I'm your host, Rob Lane, and if you're a regular listener, thanks for coming back. And if you're new to the show, I hope you enjoy it enough to dive back into some older episodes. Today's chat was a honor for me to talk to one of this country's finest guitarists from one of our greatest rock bands, so I'm pleased to welcome Luke Morley of Thunder to the show to chat all about his brand new solo album, Songs from the Blue Room, which has just been released. Totally caught me off guard, didn't know this record was on its way, but such great songs. No surprise though, coming from the guy who has penned endless hits for the band we all know and love him for being a part of. We cover some cool stuff in our talk, we dive into the sound and recording process behind some of the tracks on the album, and we chat in depth about the influence behind the album's lead single, Killed by Cobain, whose title doesn't take much dissecting if you was around in the early 90s, but it's a really cool angle on the events of that time, and Luke and I dive back into that time period to chat a little about his thoughts and the effect it had on Thunder's career, particularly in the USA. This straight-to-video podcast is proudly presented to you in association with Affinity Photo. Affinity Photo is an incredible piece of photo editing software which I use all the time for graphic design and you can see it in the podcast episode artwork each week and it's an extremely affordable alternative to other programs on the market. So if you get a chance, please check them out at affinity.serif.com. Alright, let's get into today's talk. If you want to keep up to date with everything Luke is up to outside of Thunder and grab a copy of the new album Songs from the Blue Room, then head on over to LukeMorleyOnline.com. And of course, there's always ThunderOnline.com where you can keep up to date with lead singer Danny Bowser's road to recovery after his accident and also pick up the cool new reissues of the first few Thunder albums. But right now, please enjoy my straight-to-video chat with Luke Morley. Hey. Got you, sir. How you I'm good, mate. How's things? Not so bad, thank you. Great stuff. Lovely to see you. Thank you for doing this. No worries. I had Danny on the show a couple of years ago. Okay. We had a good chat. It was fun. So how's he doing? Now everybody's probably asking you how everything is. No, it's fine. No, he's good. He's recovering really well. Basically, now into the kind of the long, hard bit of it, which is the kind of physical rehab stuff. I saw him measure yesterday and it improved a lot from the last time I saw him, which was a few weeks before. So, yeah, it's going to be a little while yet, but his whole kind of demeanor has lifted. So, that's all good. And he's feeling really good about it. So, you know, onwards and upwards. Definitely, mate. Definitely. Great stuff. That's good to hear. I'll dive in. What's been the initial response to the new album, Songs from the Blue Room? Now, it's been out to the world for a couple of weeks. Incredibly positive. You know, it's an interesting thing, obviously, because I'm not a. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not a solo artist, so it's an interesting thing. And, you know, you're always kind of slightly nervous when you do something which people kind of maybe aren't expecting. But that response to it has been amazing. In fact, I'd go as far as to say, out of all the albums I've ever released in my life, including Thunder albums, this is the most consistently positive on a review front. Going back to Backstreet Symphony, I would say, which is incredible. But they haven't said all of that as well. It's often the case that albums that are critically acclaimed never do that well. So, <laughs> Damn it. You know, we'll see. Is there a different feeling to putting out a solo record to that of a new album from Thunder? Are you like more nervous or? Yeah, well, of course, yeah, because I think with Thunder, you know, Thunder is a very established act and, you know, 14 albums and everything. And obviously with this, you know, this is the first time I've done this for 20 odd years. So it's uh, an interesting thing. 
And obviously, you know, given what's happened with Danny and everything, it's interesting. It's come at a good time for me because, you know, as a musician, you know, we had COVID and that stopped us working for a while. And then obviously we've had Danny with his injury and that's kind of stopped Thunder working in terms of gigging. So this album's given me something to focus on and, um, you know, yeah, no, so it's, it's good. It'd be very easy to think the album cover was some clever Photoshop, but that's an actual building in Spain, I believe. It is, yeah. It's called El Morala Roja, and it's in a place called Calpe, not far from Alicante. Yeah, it's an amazing building. It's inspired quite a lot of weird stuff, actually. It was the inspiration behind the set of Squid Game. I don't know if you saw that show. Oh, wow. I thought you were going to say like something like Labyrinth or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I get why you'd say that. But yeah, Squid Game and the bizarre steps that kind of go nowhere and so it's yeah, it's an interesting building. One thing I picked up on, and this is my slight bias, it's a great sounding album when it comes to the bass and where it sits in the mix. Is that you playing bass on the album? It is, yeah. There's some like real classic style playing on there. It just sits right, filling everything out. Tick like songs, watch the sun go down, cry like rain, I'm the one you want. Do you enjoy playing bass? I do. I think it's the most under kind of valued instrument in popular music. I mean, if you you know, across all genres, I mean, if you think about bands that have fantastic bass players. I mean, by that, I mean the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, The Who. A lot of, like, Entwistle or McCartney's work have been more pedestrian or John Paul Jones, you know, it would have completely changed how some of the songs sounded. You know, bass is, is in this kind of, obviously everybody notices the singer, notices the lead guitar player, notices the drummer, because they're naturally usually more flamboyant. But a slight alteration in any bass line can completely change the feel of everything. Yeah, so it's something that I, I'm fascinated by bass guitar. If a song's got an interesting bass line, that's an amazing thing. It's so easy in rock music just to get on, on the eight and go dum, 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 dum. Which sounds great if that's what the song needs. That's great. I think in context it's great, but there were a lot of records in the 80s. And that's all the bass bloody did. Or the bass wasn't even in the mix at all. <laughs> no, exactly that as well, yeah. I did a session once actually for Andy Taylor from Duran many years ago. About the time we started Thunder, he'd made this solo album, which I don't think actually has ever come out. He rang me and said, look, doing this album, I want to concentrate on my singing. Would you mind coming up and playing guitar? So yeah, it's all right. So I'm in Chipping Norton, which is a very famous studio in Chipping Norton near Oxford. So I wondered, I didn't know who was going to be there. And the band was me, Mel Gaynor from Simple Minds on Drums, Bernie Marsden playing guitar. The bass player was Bernard Edwards. No pressure then. And it was like, oh, my God. You know, I mean, I kind of knew Mel anyway, and I was a bit burning before, but fucking hell, Bernard Edwards, Jesus. And it was great. And we were up there for about a week. Bernard was very clean. He didn't drink or anything. And, and I'm an early riser, so I was up quite early. And one morning, me and him and Mel were sitting having a cup of tea in, in the kitchen, and he said, oh, man, let's go warm up. Let's just, just jam a little. So basically, we went out there and plugged in, and we did everything, like Led Zeppelin songs, Beatles songs, and he knew all of them, of course. Turns out McCartney was his favourite bass player, which is quite interesting. And I said to the assistant engineer, I said, oh, go just bunk a second machine, record this, it'd be interesting. And it was great. There was about 20 minutes of us just mucking around. It was fantastic. And the cassette was in my car when my car Wi-Fi got pinched. Oh, no. But I lost it, yeah. Oh, Unbelievable. How long ago was that? That was in 1989 it was recorded. So, yeah, and I think it's probably a couple of years later somebody broke into my car and pinched oh, it. Oh, shit. Was that the first time you met Andy Taylor? I met Andy about a year before that. When we just about the time we were sort of starting Thunder and finishing sort of Terror Plane, he got it straight away. I, you know, we were looking for somebody to produce and somebody as, as a kind of catalyst because we knew Terror Plane wasn't quite sitting right. I and mean, we wanted to make a big rock record and I'd started to write songs, the songs that ended up on Backstreet Symphony. And it's not really rock and roll, the story of how I met him, but 
we changed accountant. I was sitting in the meeting with this accountant. I said, oh, yeah, in Sazigan. So, well, you know, we're going to start this new band looking for a producer. And, oh, are you familiar with Andy Taylor? I said, well, I don't know. He said, well, he's just moved back here from LA and he's looking to produce like an English rock band. I went, oh, okay. So he kind of hooked us up and I went to meet Andy. And, yeah, we got on very well straight away. So, yeah, that was it really. And, um, yeah, we're still mates now, which is great. Going back to the new album, the song I'm the One You Want, you have like a real Black Crow's Chris Robinson vibe going off on that. I don't know if anyone's mentioned that. You're about the third person who said that, but it's either that or Little Feet, either which I don't mind. I went to the Black Crow's first gig in the old Marquee Club in London. That was in 1990, I think. Backstreet Symphony had just come out, and I had a long chat with Chris Robinson at the bar, and he said how much he liked Backstreet Symphony, and we had a good old netter. So, yeah, no, it's great. I think he's a great singer. I think he's a fantastic frontman as well. Really, really good. Yeah, classic American. Well, they're a classic American rock band these days. Yeah, with those southern bluesy roots and a little bit of country in there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely love it. I really enjoyed some of the subtle things going off in the background on the first track, I Want to See the Light. Picked upon the keys in the pre-chorus and then the high guitars that come in in the second verse. Just really cool touches. Thank you. They're the sort of bits that people don't normally notice, but obviously I suppose a musician would pick up on those things. So thank you. No, I mean... A big believer in simplicity when you're recording, you know, don't put anything on there that isn't adding something. Because, you know, as somebody started, first went into recording studios in the 80s when everything, the bloody kitchen sink used to go on record. <laughs> and everyone's just listening to their own part. Don't care what anybody else is doing. Crazy. That's why I'm a big fan of 70s records, because I think they're minimalist. It was way before digital got involved in recording. So people had to think carefully about what went where and. You know, so thank you. I mean, it's, it's nice. You know, you get the basic song, you think, just think a little something there, a little something there. We don't want to kill it. So everyone needs to listen out for them, call a little bit. It just, it just lifts yeah, things. Exactly. The lead single, Killed by Cobain. I've heard a few people mention the Travelling Wilburys sound of it. And uh, rather than the Beatles, one of my references was Enough's Enough in some of the vocal delivery. Obviously a Beatles-influenced band, but I think you being from a rock background, I perhaps associated it more with an Enough's Enough sound for some reason. Uh, okay. Yeah, I don't know much about enough stuff. I've met Chip a couple of times. He seems like a really decent chap. I saw them when they first came over, once again, in the early 90s, and they opened their show with Magical Mystery Tour, the Beatles song. They still do that now a lot of the time. Do they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. It impressed me. I thought, oh, that's cool. It's quite cool for a rock band to do that. Yeah. Well, I think, yes, yeah, it's all in that Beatles thing, isn't it? Because, I mean, the Wilburys, you know, the Wilburys had a Beatle in it, and Jeff Finn kind of was like almost like a Beatle. So, once again, it's the simplicity of the songs. Three chords and four, probably, in that song. And, and a nice groove. And I'm a massive fan of Tom Petty as well. So, you know, yeah, great. I mean, I'd, I'd take that all day. People compare it to the Wilburys. Lovely. I'll take that. It's a really cool subject matter. And obviously, the whole Seattle movement of the early 90s had a massive effect on the music industry and landscape, affecting so many bands. I know it affected you guys in America. But I don't think I've heard many artists directly reference it in songs, especially in such a I don't want to say a tongue-in-cheek way, but in the way of highlighting what happened, how it derailed a lot of careers. But your lyrics say you're over it now, in a way. To be honest, I got over it years ago. The interesting thing with the music industry, I always say this, when people say to me, oh, my, my son's studying on guitar and he wants to be in the band and he wants to go into it professionally, would you give him, what advice would you give him? But I always say, just prepare yourself for colossal disappointment because <laughs> it's the only thing that's certain. And I think, you know, if you've been in this business as long as we have, you're going to have things happen to you. We just think, oh, bollocks. <laughs> and that was one of those months. 
But, you know, conversely, our timing, which was fairly awful in the United States, was good in Europe, was good, you know, was good in Japan. So I can't, you know, I can't buy it. You were probably a bit more bulletproof to it than a lot of other bands because you've been in Terraplane. What was you when Thunder started? Like late 20s, just turning 30 sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, we were 28, 29 when Thunder Yeah, so you probably had that experience. You were perhaps a bit more thick-skinned than a lot of the other bands were, perhaps. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> I think in this business, you, you have to have skin like a rhino. You really do because, um, you know, it will knock you around a little bit. And, you know, sometimes things are not what they seem. And sometimes bizarre things happen that you can't control. And grunge was one of those things. You just got to go, well, you know, move on next. You know, it's just one of those things. It was a weird transition, though, because um, I think you say in the lyrics to the song, I'm thinking this is what you're relating to, but you say you loved every song. Are you referring to you, you enjoyed a lot of the music that was coming out there? Yeah. For me, I mean, I thought Smells Like Teen Spirit. First time I heard that, I remember hearing that and going, oh, this, is, this is exciting, what's this? We did a gig in, oh Christ, 1991. There was an American magazine called Rip, I suppose the American equivalent of what Kerrang! was at the time. The guy who edited the magazine, Like Thunder, and he invited us to play at their fifth anniversary party. It wasn't Lon Friend, was it? Yeah, it was Lon, yeah. Lon Friend of the Stars, yeah. So basically, Lon asked us to come and play. So we said, yeah, great, why not? Gig was, oh, it's a Hollywood Palladium, I think. But the bill was quite bizarre. It was us, Spinal Tap, an Australian man called the Screaming Jets, who opened for us, actually, here in 92, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, and Alice in Chains. I think it was Pearl Jam's fourth or fifth gig or something. And we shared the dressing room with Pearl Jam and, and Spinal Tap, which was bizarre. Talk about a Spinal Tap moment. Get all those yeah, <laughs> really was. Yeah. And the audience was kind of, it's the only time we've ever been booed, but only by half the audience. It was weird. It was like, it's almost like where the ocean parts, in, you know, in the greatest story ever told. Over there were the grunge people and over there were the kind of rock people. And it was really odd. And I watched all of those bands and I just thought they were rock bands. I, you know, I think they had more tattoos and facial hair. That was the thing then. You know, nobody had facial hair in those days, but they did. The little goatees and the plaid shirts and stuff. At the end of the day, I thought Soundgarden sounded like Sabbath. You know, Nirvana a bit more sort of punky. But I thought that particular day, again, I remember thinking that Alison Jones was very, very good indeed. Great vocal harm, the way he used vocal harmonies and the, you know, great guitar player. I just thought they were a really good band. I think some of the irony of that is I think Poison took Alison Chains out on one of the first US tours. I, mean, I did some shows a couple of years ago. Five years ago, I did a debt job for Black Star Riders. And they were kind of between guitar players. And obviously, I've mates with Ricky for years and, and I've known Scott for years as well. So they ran me said, Do you want to go to South America do some gigs there? And it just came at a time of Thunder weren't doing it. They said, Yeah, I'm in, fuck it. They were opening for Judas Priest. And on some of the gigs, Alison Chains were on the shows as well. So it's great to sort of see him and, and see Jerry Cantrell. And, and so, yeah, it's great. I mean, they're a really good band. One thing I wanted to ask prior to Thunder Forming, you and Danny, you've been out to Hollywood on something. I think someone described it as a fact finding mission. Yeah. I think you soaked up pretty much the last hurrah of the Sunset Strip in the very late 80s. What do you remember about that trip? Was it exciting seeing our electric everything was out there? Well, yeah, I think it actually. Well, because it, it came at a time where we knew Terraplane was coming to an end. And I'd written a couple of songs that were kind of pointing towards Thunder. Yeah, we literally, we went there, we spent a week in New York. And yeah, it was that time, you know, it's probably March 88. So Appetite for Destruction maybe just come out, although guns hadn't at that point quite exploded in what they, you know, later became. But it was just interesting walking up Sunset Strip and seeing all the hair and the makeup and the nobody wearing much, you know, and difficult to tell a boy should be because then it was weird. Although we didn't really fit that. What was great was all those clubs along the strip, Gazaris, the Rainbow, Roxy, all with lots of rock music piling out. Most of it, I have to say, wasn't brilliant and hasn't really stood the test of time. But 
there were the, this was the odd thing. I thought, oh, that's really good. Yeah, and that coincided as well with Permanent Vacation, which is Aerosmith's comeback album. That came out around the same time. And it was hearing that on American radio that made me go, wow, this is fantastic. I've never heard a rock record sound technically that good. Yeah, it's just that big, big rock sound. Yeah. And it's Mike Fraser was the engineer. And that's why when we came back and started Thunder, I said to our manager, we need to get Mike Fraser. It's really important we get him. And Fraser, to his credit, we sent him a load of demos. Before we had a deal, we just sent him the demos and got through with him. And he came back and said, brilliant. I think the band's fantastic. I'm in. I'll come to England. And once again, it's another of those relationships where we still make, he still mixes Thunder albums now. So, yeah, so that was, it was worth going to, going to the stage just for that. <laughs> uh, no, it was great. We came back from that thinking there is a rock scene because there wasn't really anything going on in England at the time. So it kind of gave us a sort of sense of energy, which was, you know, much needed at that point. I've got some friends in America and it, it blows their minds when, I mean, I like all those Hollywood hard rock bands, but friends in America don't understand that most of them never really broke in England. We had your Bon Jovi and Def Leppard and the odd single to get through, but to them, it was always played on the radio back then. It was, yeah. We had to really look for it. Yeah, and no, I mean, KNAC in LA, I remember driving around there, up, well, up until we were in grunge up there, you know, in you know, 90. And that was all day with Winger, Warren, all of those bands, one after the other. And, and I think it kind of, one of the reasons why grunge needed to happen was because it got incredibly predictable and boring. I mean, it really did. Homogenised, I, I suppose, and every band's record sounded like the last band's records. It's kind of weird, though. It's like, I would imagine, like, the record labels perhaps pushed a lot of those bands in that direction. You know, you've got to have the big ballad and yeah. a cookie-cutter routine. Perhaps not the band's fault. Yeah. Some of those bands produced some of the best material around that time, but everything became so cookie-cutter because of the labels trying to push for it. But then it was the labels that just dismissed all those bands when grunge came along. It's like, you put us in this position, <laughs> and now you're just chucking us away. Thereby hangs a very valuable lesson for we are musicians, which is, do what the fuck you want. Don't listen to the record company too much, especially when they, you know, especially if they're talking about material and songs and what you should or shouldn't be doing. You have to do it. You have to do it how you see it and stick with it. I do love the American video for "Dirty Love," which you shot. I think that's a great video still to this day, which features a young Pamela Anderson. It does, yeah. That's Harry's greatest claim to fame. There's a scene in the video <laughs> where he's in the shower with Pamela Anderson. He still dines out on that now. Where was that shot at? Do you remember? Yeah, it's a big warehouse in downtown LA. I can't remember where, but I remember the director was a complete lunatic. His name they will come to me in a minute it's the same guy there's, there's a very good film about the who called kids are all right and it's the same guy and obviously it was in times that were should we say less pc than they are now. yeah on the day he was auditioning girls there's five girls in it and on the day he was auditioning the girls for some reason i think we were rehearsing or something and he came and took the space next door and he had all these girls in the studio and you know in la girls and casting it's going on all the time and the things he was saying to these girls, I mean, he said to one of them, okay, get down on your knees, hands and knees and pretend I'm a fire hydrant. I mean, I mean all bizarre stuff like that. Wow. Jesus. He'd have been cancelled in seconds now. Yeah, oh, in seconds, yeah. So definitely all its time, as is the video. Yeah. And you look back at it now, and it, well, it seems like another century. Well, it was another century. <laughs> so, you know, it's funny how things move. But I don't think the world has got a worse place for uh, all, all of its pc Some of it's a bit over the top, but I think that video is kind of, yeah, it's very all its time, Jimmy. So. Is Harry's beard in the video a nod to A&R man John Kolodner? Yeah, so what they did was, well, Kolodner's in the video. Kolodner, is, I actually got on very well with him, but his ego knew no bounds. He's in all the Aerosmith videos. He's in every band that he got involved. So it's like, okay, well, I have to be in the video. I remember him saying it. You know. Good impression. What are we going to do then? You know? I can play drums. 
So, yeah, so he, he got a bald wig on, you know, how he got the beard on, and that was, yeah, that was the joke. Luke, I'll let you go. I want to wish you all the success with the new album. It's great. Thank you, sir. Great that you're staying so productive. Some great songs on there. And any plans to tour it at any point? Talking about that in a minute. And if I can, I will. I, if, I want to do it right, though, if I do it. So I want to make sure I get the musicians that I want and all of that sort of stuff. But, yeah, it'd be a shame to make the album and then not bother going out to play, wouldn't it? So hopefully, yes. Awesome, man. Well, you enjoy the rest of your day. It'd be lovely to meet you. You too, mate. Take care now. All the best. Big thank you to Luke Morley for being a top bloke and chatting with me here on the Straight to Video podcast. Really fun to connect and hear some of his stories. As mentioned earlier, you can pick up the new album Songs from the Blue Room at LukeMorleyOnline.com and keep up to date with all things Thunder at ThunderOnline.com. Now, some of you may have seen that I've begun to share video clips from episodes of the podcast. I have most of the chats that I've recorded over the past three years, so I thought it would be a shame not to share some clips with you. So if you'd like to see those, then head on over to YouTube and search Straight to Video Podcast or give a like to the Straight to Video Facebook where they can be found too. I'd really love to build the YouTube channel though, so any love and support for that would be awesome. So that's all for this episode. I'll be back, as always, next Friday. But until then, always be kind. Please rewind and unwind, and I'll speak to you all real soon.